To the kindly influence of Christianity, we owe that degree of civil freedom and political and social happiness which mankind now enjoys. All efforts made to destroy the foundations of our holy religion ultimately tend to the subversion also of our political freedom and happiness. Whenever the pillars of Christianity shall be overthrown, our present Republican forms of government and all the blessings which flow from them must fall with them. That was Jedediah Morse, and this is Freedom's Call. Let freedom Welcome to Freedom's Call. And now, here's your host, Brett Sterling. It's a common misconception that America was not founded on Judeo-Christian principles. And that's the secular humanist uh, view of mankind, it's, it, and that's based on that idea. After all, if man is not the center of the universe, their entire construct, as it pertains to the role of government, completely falls apart. And that role that they see is that government is the administrator of all justice and the writer of all wrongs in society. And that's simply just not possible. So the myth between the church and uh, separation of church and state is is one of the examples that they use. And the source of this is a letter Thomas Jefferson penned to the Danbury Baptists. Now, this is a single uh, excerpt of a single sentence of a very brief letter in a series of communications between Jefferson and the Danbury Baptist. It's, it's a short letter, so let's just give it a quick read, and we'll see the whole context of the letter as it was written. Gentlemen, the affectionate sentiments of esteem and approbation which you are so good as to express towards me on behalf of the Danbury Baptist Association give me the highest satisfaction. My duties dictate a faithful and zealous pursuit of the interests of my constituents, and in proportion as they are persuaded by of, of my fidelity to those duties, the discharge of them becomes more and more pleasing. Believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship than the legitimate powers of government reach actions only, and not opinions, I contemplate with sovereign reverence that act of the whole American people which declared that their legislature should make, and this is quoting, make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, in close quote, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. Adhering to this expression of the supreme will of the nation in behalf of the rights of conscience, I shall see with sincere satisfaction the progress of those sentiments which tend to restore to man all his natural rights, convinced he has no natural right in opposition to his social duties. I reciprocate your kind prayers for the protection and blessings of the common father and the creator of man, and tender you for yourselves and your religious association assurances of my high respect and esteem. Thomas Jefferson, January 1, 1802. So we see in there that you know the, the cherry-picked line wall building a wall between of, of separation between church and state. But if you read the context of the letter, and if you read the other writings of the of the of the founders and of the framers of the Constitution, 
this was not protecting the state from the church. This was protecting the church from the state. And remember, Charles, you know, King, King George III in England had established the, the Anglican Church of England and by decree demanded that all British subjects be a member of the Anglican Church. The, and that was an official sanctioned church of the British crown. Okay, now that is, that's an encroachment by the state, in effect, on the church. That's not what Jefferson is talking about here, and that's not what is, is discussed in the vast majority of our writings and our founding documents and our governing documents. You know, this was Jefferson arguing that the church must be protected by encroachment of the state. Now, there were multiple churches, multiple religions uh, of the colonists. And when you when you look at this letter, I mean, it's a, like I said, it's a very brief letter. It only took just a few seconds to actually read it. But yet the secular humanists and the left, you know, they, they carve out this one uh, sentence or this one phrase of a sentence, building a wall between of separation between church and state, that that is their proof that they think that the church and that religion has absolutely no place in government. Now, I mentioned, you know, this is a series of letters that were discussing our constitutional republic in the place that religion has in its founding. Now, you would, you would think that if the framers wanted our government and religion to be completely separate, there wouldn't be so many references to God, to the Creator, and nature's God in our founding documents and our original writings and our governing documents. You wouldn't think that in the run-up to the war for independence that it would have been important to the framers and the founders of our country for the sermons of Reverend John Wise to be reprinted. Now, these sermons were very, very important because John Wise was one of the most widely read individuals um, you know, pre-revolution. As a matter of fact, it's been estimated that over 80% of the colonists uh, in America, um, you know, learned to read basically, um, you know, from reading the, uh, the the Reverend John Wise's sermons. And you wouldn't think that there would be so many concepts, you know, from those sermons that were actually used in the Declaration of Independence and also codified in the Constitution. You know, one of the reasons why the colonists left England was for religious freedom. As I mentioned, you know, King George mandated that all British subjects must worship the, in the Church of England. The colonists were of various religions. They were Protestants, they were Catholics, they were Methodists, Puritans, Quakers, and yes, there were some deists as well. Um, it, the, the signers of the Declaration of Independence had, in effect, signed their death warrant for the opportunity to make these very personal decisions themselves. And remember that the signers of the Declaration at the time were British subjects. If they would have exited Independence Hall after signing the Declaration of Independence, that was an act of treason. If they would have run into British soldiers immediately upon exiting that hall, they could have been hanged right there on the spot. So whenever our, whenever our, the founders of our country, you know, you know, stated that they pledged their lives, their fortunes, their sacred honor to each other. They absolutely were doing that. They put everything on the line. 
And but it was their faith. It was their faith in the creators, their faith in God is a faith in the in the Judeo-Christian principles our country is founded upon that they were actually right in, and were making a righteous and morally right decision. And we'd be protected in that decision. That kind of sets a little bit of a backdrop for the rest of our conversation here. And uh, we're going to take a brief break and we'll be right back uh, with our next segment where we discuss uh, voting and the franchise. We'll be right back here on Freedom's Call. In 2018, the McLaughlin poll found that 82% of Americans surveyed support term limits. Term limits are a check on arrogance, a check on incumbency, and a check on power. But Congress has a hard time firing itself. Why should they? There certainly is a comfort knowing that you won't lose your job regardless of your behavior. There is a solution to the problem. The founding fathers of our country saw that this could be a problem, so they gave us Article 5 of the Constitution. It simply states that we the people can limit the power and jurisdiction of the federal government, impose fiscal restraints, and place term limits on federal officials. If this makes sense to you, you can get involved by going to conventionofstates.com. The only Americans that don't support term limits are the career politicians in Washington. That should tell you all you need to know. Join us at conventionofstates.com, sign the petition, and volunteer. Conventionofstates.com. You're listening to Freedom's Call on Key Radio, 89.3 Lake of the Ozarks. And now, here's your host, Brett Sterling. And welcome back here to Freedom's Call on uh, Key Radio, KEYK, 89.3 Lake of the Ozarks. Uh, I'm your host, Brett Sturley. Um, as always, if you want to interact with the show, please uh, shoot us an email at freedomscall89.3 at gmail.com. That's F-R-E-E-D-O-M-S-C-A-L-L, 89.3 at gmail.com. So we discussed a little bit uh, in, the, in the first uh, segment uh, about the role of faith uh, role the faith played in our, the founding of our country and in our constitutional government. And one of those things that is very, very critical uh, to securing not only the principle of religious freedom, uh, but other freedoms in the Constitution um, is, the, the, is the right to vote. Now, you might remember that you know the Constitution is a document that that delineates the, the uh, relationship between the federal government and the individual. Now, the framers drafted the Constitution that they deemed to be least likely, um, you know, to establish a government structure that was least likely to infringe on our natural rights, our individual rights and liberties. The constitutional government authority is based on the consent of the governed. So, you really can't have a consent of the governed. So how do the how do the governed express their consent? Well, an individual's right to vote is a prerequisite to securing those individual freedoms and demonstrating consent. But just having the ability to vote is not enough. There there must be integrity in the electoral process. Every eligible voter must be able to vote. Every legally cast ballot must be counted. And there continues to be controversy over the 2020 election. You know, many Trump supporters claim that fraud caused the election to be stolen from President Trump. The other side accuses these Trump supporters of wild conspiracy theories and being sore losers. Now, 
I will have to admit, November 3rd, even November 3rd and uh, morning November 4th, my first inclination, and still, something probably went a little bit wrong. This just does not make any sense. You look at all these other metrics, look at swing counties that they typically don't sway away from the uh, winner of the presidential election. Uh, You look at voter enthusiasm. Uh, You know, there are just all kinds of metrics. It just, like I said, just did not pass the eye test, but I I did not want to think with my heart. I didn't want to follow my heart and, and be blinded to the truth. So I said, you know, let's kind of keep my powder dry. And, you know, it doesn't make sense that Somebody who campaigned mainly for their basement got more, you know, presidential presidential votes in the in the popular vote than any other president in history. I mean, 80 million votes. You know, President Trump. I think that he increased his vote total by about eight million uh, votes. Never has been a uh, an incumbent president defeated who actually had a higher vote total the second time around compared to the first time. I still maintain there's no chance that Joe Biden actually received 80 million legitimate votes. There's likely voter fraud in every single election. Voter fraud is very difficult to prove unless it's caught at the polls at the time that it occurs. Whether the, the number of illegally cast votes, what I believe to be illegally cast votes for Joe Biden or against President Trump, because I think that there were probably just as many votes against President Trump as what there were for Joe Biden. Were there enough to change electoral college result is the question. I believe there were. I've seen evidence uh, of this, and we might talk about this a little bit more in a later show. But we really need to have, we really need to see all that evidence. And, and some of that evidence, like I said, is, is coming forward. But we'll stick to the facts that which are irrefutable. In the Constitution, only state legislatures had the constitutional authority to change election law. You know, the state of Missouri made several changes to the 2020 election process, like expanded mail-in voting, increasing the number of days to cast ballots. These changes were passed by the Missouri legislature, and they were signed by Governor Parson in accordance with the federal Constitution. At least these changes were sunset on December 31st of 2020. Now, uh, second point is other states absolutely violated the federal, con- federal constitution and in states like Pennsylvania, they violated their state constitution as well. Now, they did that because these changes were made at the secretary of state level, at the attorney general level, at the governor level, through the state courts, you know, specifically in Pennsylvania. I mean, it clearly states in their state constitution that any changes to state election law and those processes have to be passed by the legislature, signed by the governor, and then go to a vote of the people. Well, that didn't happen. Uh, the, the, the governor and the secretary of state unilaterally made changes, and admittedly, the legislature did as well. Never sent that to the, to the, to the people, so they violated their state constitution as well. You had states like Nevada and Pennsylvania that mailed out unsolicited ballots to voters, and there was this like sending out the publisher, publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes entries. I mean, just imagine, you know, how much uh, propensity there is for fraud if you just randomly, without request, just sent tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of ballots to every registered voter and really not even knowing that those voter rolls are actually even accurate to begin with. You had unsecured ballot drop boxes placed through several cities, creating huge chain of custody issues. States like Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and Georgia remove signature ver- verification requirements to verify legally cast ballots. There were over 400 lawsuits filed in state courts between 
January 2017 and November 2020 affecting state election laws. Most every single one of these lawsuits were filed on behalf of Democrat and Democrat Party affiliated groups. Now, this would have been just as wrong if Republican groups and Republican Party affiliated groups would have filed the exact same lawsuits. Would have been every bit as wrong. You know, these lawsuits seek to relax election standards, extend the time for ballots to be cast, and compromise the ability to verify the, the validity of, cast, of ballots cast and degrade the chain of custody. Additionally, in the state of Pennsylvania, you know, Election Day was uh, polls closed on November 3rd at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Well, one of the changes that were made uh, by the governor to the election, ele- election process is that mail-in ballots would be able to be counted until Friday at 7 p.m., so three days later. So that one, that's a huge issue. So if, if I was going to vote, if I was going to vote in person, if I would go there Friday morning to vote in person at my precinct, well, tough luck. Nobody's there. The, pro- the polls are closed. However, if I would have mailed my ballot, say, like on Wednesday, and it would have arrived on Friday, then yes, it would be counted. That's a that's not only I mean, that's a, that's a huge equal protection issue. If they, they'd like to ban you around the 14th Amendment, that's a massive equal protection issue. You're not protect, You're not treating two citizens equally there. And additionally, you know, if you look back at all the changes, whether you know, no matter what they were, there was not a single change that made to the election procedures that I can find in any state that actually increased the integrity of the election. So. When we come back, we're going to be joined by Greene County uh, Clerk Shane Scholler. Shane will educate us on the role of the county clerk and how we can help our elected officials secure elections. We'll be right back on Freedom's Call. This important message is brought to you by your friends at conventionofstates.com. Talk shows in the media are constantly using words of division, hate, and questions about where our country is headed. Often these discussions leave one with a feeling of doom. In sports and business, when we get off the path to success, often a reset is needed to get back to the basics. It's time for you to get involved. Sitting on the sidelines to see what happens isn't an answer. This is the best country in the world. Let your voices be heard in a peaceful and positive way. Let's join together and get this country back to where we can all be proud again. The Founding Fathers were afraid our Constitution was fragile, and for that reason included a reset to get back to the constitutional basics they authored. Article 5 of the Constitution provides a path for we the people to amend the Constitution. Everything you need to know is at conventionofstates.com. You're listening to Freedom's Call on Key Radio, 89.3 Lake of the Ozarks. And now, here's your host, Brett Sterling. Hey, welcome back. As promised, we are joined by Green County Clerk Shane Schuller. Uh, Shane has served in various uh, elected and appointed positions throughout Missouri in national government. Shane represented the 139th District in the Missouri Legislature from 2007 through 2012 and served as Speaker Pro Tem as well. Since 2012, he has been the Green County Clerk responsible for conducting free and fair elections in Greene County, as well as other responsibilities I imagine that we'll learn. Shane Schuller, welcome to Freedom's Call. Hey, thanks, Brad. I really appreciate the opportunity to be on with you today. 
Uh, ab- absolutely, looking forward to having our audience learn quite a bit here. Now, now you've been you've been in, in, involved with Missouri politics for some time. So, I mean, what exactly you know piqued your interest to run for elected office? Well, ever since I was young, I can just um, really remember just kind of a almost a sense of a calling towards public service. Um, I remember um, even as a young um, kid really troubled by what I saw with the Carter administration. Um, at one point, I remember my grandma getting on to me because I wasn't being respectful enough to the president, you know, <laughs> at that time. And then when Ronald Reagan um, became president, I just remember the sense of, of just how he kind of brought up about the idea that liberty and freedom and the idea that um, our nation was founded upon these principles that you know, based upon your talent, your desire, and you take the talent desire and you are able um, to have the same opportunities as everyone else. And it depends upon what you do with that. And I just love that idea. And I love the idea that, um, you know, we get the opportunity to make a decision for our future. And of course, you know, sometimes there are bad moments along the way, there are trouble spots, but the idea that government is out of the way that government does not need to be there to guarantee success. Matter of fact, I think we both agree oftentimes government um, often guarantees the opposite when it gets too involved um, as part of anything. And so um, I think that's where my interest came and that just, you know, interest continued to build. Um, And then I had the opportunity um, just straight out of college to be able to work um, with Senator John Ashcroft um, when he was running for the U S Senate and uh, after I left that campaign, um, I was actually getting ready to think about going back to graduate school. So I'd graduated from Southwest Baptist University at the time. And I got a phone call and they said, would you think about doing the Listening Post program, which was a program that he was working with Senator Kit Bond at the time. And you would drive to courthouses and a lot of times, you know, um, restaurants in, in each county of the state. And you would just be there to listen to the concerns of the people. And so you really develop a deeper appreciation for our state, the, um, you know, just various areas of the state and how, you know, regionally there is such difference, but such rich, richness in that um, difference in diversity of our state in terms of the agriculture, the economy, and all the things that make that part of the state, um, what that our state comes to be collectively. So it is, it is certainly good to learn about the concerns of the grassroots and not trap yourself into bubbles. I commend you on, on getting out and, and, t- and talking to the people. So what was your next role? I uh, was uh, left that, and Congressman Roy Blunt had just been elected and said, would you be interested in coming to work with me um, in the United States Capitol? And so, you know, I'm just a young kid, and I thought, well, this will be interesting. And so... Um, you know, really took some time to pray about it and the sense that that's where I was going to be. So I was out there about 18 months total, just long enough. <laughs> it wouldn't have wanted to been out there any, any longer. Um, and my wife and I were dating at the time. And so I came back, worked with Congress Mullet for a couple more years. And then um, she ended up going um, to Columbia to go to law school. And that's Matt Blunt had just won the race for Secretary of State. And so um, I applied to see if he would, you know, find a spot for me, and and he did. And what a lot of people may not remember, um, I think most of your audience will, um, is in the election of 2000, when we went to bed on election night, we didn't know who our next president was going to be. 
though we also saw in the city of St. Louis, the polls were held open an additional three hours. And on the eve of the um, well, not on the eve, but on that election night, you know, John Ashcroft lost that race. And there was a lot of question regarding the integrity of that election and why in the world did the city of St. Louis voters get to continue to vote for an additional three hours when the rest of us at seven o'clock, if we were in line, we got to vote, but anyone else who showed up after that did not. And that's where kind of my um, heart began um, to see that it matters how elections are ran. It matters who is there. And, you know, no one is perfect when it comes to administration election because we're humans, but you have to make sure that you have people who are interested in, in running an election well and, and how they do that matters. And so that's kind of where I developed the interest of where I'm at today um, and just have continued to develop that passion. And of course, when I became kind of clerk, I had no idea that it would turn into some of the concerns we've seen today um, because elections weren't quite as, as high on people's radar then back in 2015 as they are now. But I think you can now see that it's really important um, that people have faith and confidence that they can trust in the outcome of their elections. You served in Missouri legislature from 2017, or excuse me, 2007 until 2012. And yes, what what are is there is there anything that you learned serving in Jefferson City? Because you were Speaker Pro Tem, and then after uh, Speaker Steve Tilley uh, resigned, then you were Speaker Speaker of the House for uh, some time there. Is there anything that you that you learned in the state legislature that has helped you in your current role as Green County Clerk? You know, the biggest thing I learned when I was pro Tim is slow down and don't feel the need to always have the answer at the moment. Sometimes as a person elected office, you may not know the answer. And you know what? That's okay. You're not expected all the answers. But what you are expected to do is to get the decision right. And so um, certainly when I was in the dais, um, for, you know, basically during the debate on the floor, um, the times I made a mistake was when I made a rush decision. And I think that's something that I have tried to keep in mind is it's okay to slow down and say, I don't know, but I'm going to find out. I want to find out so that I can make a better decision than if I didn't find out and end up making the wrong decision. And- well, that's, that's excellent advice. And I, and, uh, you know, that's, Sometimes difficult to do because you know, especially when you're an, when you're an elected official or you're in some type of you know a, a position of of you know power or prominence or whatever. You know, people expect you to have every answer to every single question, and so sometimes that hubris uh, takes over, and you want to try to um, you you want to try to answer every single question. And I think I think it's a great a great approach to say, hey, you know what? I don't know the answer to that, but I'm going to find out, and I'll get back to you. Absolutely, so. you know, and, and occasionally, still as, as as a husband and probably as a parent, I still make the mistake, and occasionally here at the workplace, but, <laughs> but I still do my best to slow down. <laughs> Well, I've realized at home that I never make the right decision. So I just kind of like <laughs> set right. back and I just, I just like, what, 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 what do you want the answer to be? And I'll do that. You know, that's uh, right. That's right. well, that music in my ear means that it's a bomb of the bomb of the hour. We have to take a, a hard break. Uh, when we come back, we'll continue our interview with, uh, with uh, Green County Clerk Shane Scholler. We'll see you back here on the other side of the break here on Freedom's Call. And I hope we have once again reminded people 
But man is not free unless government is limited. There's a clear cause and effect here that is as neat and predictable as a law of physics. As government expands, liberty contracts.